I am really excited about the inaugural podcast of Keto Culture. Uh, we got as our first guest, Mike Robbins. Mike is a amazing guy. He is a author of many books, such as Bring Your Whole Self to Work, Focus on the Good Stuff, and others. Great sought-after public speaker, professional baseball pitcher, and actually I handpicked him to be the first guest on this show. So we're really excited to talk to Mike, and we're really excited to kick off this podcast. Let's go. Welcome to the Key to Culture podcast, a show that explores the sometimes unseen forces that animate, connect, and unleash thriving companies and teams. You're listening to the Key to Culture podcast, exploring vital energy and life force at work with Tom Kelly. Mike, it's great to have you on Key to Culture. I've been a big fan of yours. Uh, Bring Your Whole Self to Work was kind of one of the inspirations for this podcast. Oh, wow. Well, Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the kind words. And I'm excited for us to have this conversation. Awesome. Awesome. I think the... One of the first things I'll ask every guest is, what do you think, in your experience, makes a amazing, fulfilling, thriving culture? Well, that's, that's a good question. It's a deep question. There's a lot to it. I think, um, you know, my, I'll say it this way. My passion for this work really comes from, you know, my background as an athlete. I played baseball as a kid all growing up. And got a chance to play in college at Stanford and then got a chance to play professionally with the Kansas City Royals uh, for a few years before I got injured. I was a pitcher and I hurt my arm. Um, And as disappointed as I was when my career ended, and then I was, and as much as I loved the game when I was playing, and I did, one of the things I found to be most fascinating in all my years as an athlete was sometimes I was on some teams where we had really good talent, but the team wasn't very good which didn't make sense because, you know, in sports, if you have the best players, the best athletes, you would think you would have the best team. Not the case. And then I was on some other teams where we had, you know, good talent, not, not fantastic, and the team was awesome. And it was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. We would beat teams that had better players than we did. And I was like, okay, I don't understand. And as an athlete, even in my, you know, early 20s, as I started to get really curious about this in college and then playing professionally, we would talk about, you know, within my, with my teammates, it was called, we called it chemistry, team chemistry, and it was kind of hard to define, but we knew when we had it, and we definitely knew when we didn't have it, and it wasn't just, you know, the sort of warm, fuzzy, touchy-feely thing, it like made a difference in terms of how we performed. Right. And so, you know, when I left baseball after I got injured, and a couple surgeries on my arm, and I had to retire from baseball, I, I get a job working in the tech world, this is like a little over 20 years ago, and I immediately noticed oh, that team chemistry thing that I erroneously thought was a sports thing, that has nothing to do with sports. It's a human thing, right? right? It's culture. It's what we're talking about here. And so anyway, I mean, that's kind of, I got fascinated after a couple of years working for a few tech companies. I was like, wait a minute, I want to learn more about this. I want to see, can you deconstruct this? Can you teach this? Can, are there things you can do to create it? And that's what had me start my consulting business on 18 years ago. And over 18 years of studying this and looking at this, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that go into creating a great culture. I would say one of the first things is an intention to have a great culture. Like we have to be thinking about it. The other thing that's really important, and we can talk more about this, is just the relationships and the connections that we have with the other people that we're working with. And the more we can build those consciously and authentically, the more likely we're going to create a really strong culture where people can thrive. Right, right. Beautiful. Yeah, I was talking with someone about that kind of chemistry and we were talking about 
is the individual does the individual go into a, a culture and is, is he he or she influenced by it or does that individual actually create the a new culture when they go in you you right. think of the golden state warriors or something they had their culture and durant went in and granted he's got talent you know that <laughs> you always wonder if talent just creates culture immediately but right yeah what it's like a basketball team there's only five guys on the court so right. there is no culture without those five guys i think yeah well, it's interesting. I mean, you bring up the Golden State Warriors. So I live here in the Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland. I've been at Golden State Warriors basically since birth. And, um, you know, people listening and watching may follow basketball or not, but the Warriors were terrible forever. You know, they had a couple good years here and there, some good players, and we have a really strong fan base here in the Bay Area. But they were just bad for a long time. You know, in the 40 years between their, their two championships in 1975 and then 2015, they finished under 526 of those 40 seasons. Right. But what happened is the team started to get a little bit better, you know, and they have this amazing culture and they arguably have maybe some of the greatest talent ever assembled on a basketball team in the history of basketball. But one of the things that I think, and I watch the Warriors literally every time they play because I'm obsessed. Right. One of the key things that really drives their culture is Steph Curry, who's one of their best players. Steph won back-to-back -back MVPs and the Warriors won a championship in 2015. But even before Kevin Durant joined the team, who's another superstar, Steph, as a superstar and basically the face of the franchise, if you watch the Warriors, even if you don't like basketball, one of the most amazing things about Steph Curry is he's really committed to being one of the guys on the team. He doesn't, you know, overtly choose to stand out. And this is a sport that, I mean, is all about being the sort of alpha Yep. And being, you know, making the most money and making the game-winning shot. And it's not that I'm sure he has an ego, right? He's a human being and he's really talented. But one of the things I often say when I use the Warriors as an example, if you watch the Warriors play, watch what happens when Steph or Durant or the other stars, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, are not in the game when they're on the bench. Watch how engaged they are cheering for their teammates. And oftentimes in the fourth quarter, they're winning by so much, all of the starters are out of the game, so they're sitting on the bench. And then the reserves are in. And all the reserves, the guys on their bench are really good as well. Yeah. But watch the superstars cheer for them and get really excited because they're happy for their success. And it really is about something bigger than just the individuals. Absolutely. The Warriors always seem to have, they have a revolving bunch of, of yeah. five through ten players. But it, it always seems the same because they're always seemingly character guys. But right. they, maybe yeah. they weren't at the last place they were. Exactly. And that's back to your question of does the individual bring the culture or is the influence? I think it's a bit of both. And the truth of the matter is, again, if we'll just use the Warriors as an example, and apologies to anyone who's not following the Warriors or a basketball fan, but it's like Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Warriors, another huge component to their success. Steve Kerr played at the University of Arizona for Lute Olsen, a great college basketball coach, then played for the Chicago Bulls under Phil Jackson and was teammates with Michael Jordan when they, he won three championships there then played for Greg Popovich in San Antonio it's and the, won another two championships. Yeah. I mean, Kerr has had a blessed life and career. He's always, he was always a really good player who played hard, but also found himself in really you know, fortunate situations where he won a lot. But one of the things that Kerr talks a lot about are the key components to creating the conditions for them to be successful. He talks a lot about playing with joy. He talks a lot about competitiveness, like the healthy side of competitiveness. He talks a lot about mindfulness. And I listen to Steve Kerr talk a lot in interviews, and he often says that his job, and he learned this from Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich, is to really manage the relationships on the team. 
and make sure his players are connected to each other, but also that he's connected to them and knows what's going on in their lives. He said, because look, the X's and O's, you know, the, the basketball part of it, we've got a good enough staff and a talented enough team. That part will kind of work itself out. If I really focus on those relationships, then the team can thrive and we can have that kind of strong culture. Right. Yeah. I just had some kind of map go off in my head about tech companies yep. and the innovation in mindfulness. You know, you think of Google and Zappos and, yep. and Facebook and the idea that Pete Carroll did his stuff in Seattle, yep. big tech area. And then this is, you know, the Kerr Warriors are happening right in the middle of, you know, right in the middle of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. You know, one of the people that I interviewed and connected with over the last few years as I was working on my book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, is a guy named George Mumford. And George actually was introduced to Phil Jackson by John Kabat-Zinn. John oh. Kabat-Zinn created the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. John Kabat-Zinn's one of the people who's been fundamental and foundational and sort of mainstreaming mindfulness and meditation in the Western world. But George came in and worked with Michael Jordan and the Bulls and Phil Jackson when Steve Kerr was playing for the team in the late 90s. And then sort of fast forward to today, and you mentioned Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, and Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Golden State Warriors. And what's happened over the last, you know, eight, seven, eight years is that mindfulness and meditation in the business world, in the sports world, and in all these places has become much more mainstreamed. And there's all of these medical reports and journals and write-ups about the oh, yeah. you know, how much it helps us you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, but also in terms of being able to focus and, and really perform at the highest level individually, but also collectively. And so again, I think there is a correlation between those two things. And a lot of what happens in Silicon Valley and in the tech world is really focused on at the end of the day, just like in sports, they want to figure out how do we have people thrive at the highest level. And there are so many of these things that were seen as kind of fringe and sort of weird for a long time. Now they're realizing, oh my gosh, these things are not only healthy, but they allow you to be more effective and successful in whatever kind of work you do. Totally. You, this is why I love you. It's like you, you boil this down and send it out with such precision. Yeah. I, I thought that the, uh, John Kabat-Zinn must, when, when Jackson got known as the Zen master, was like, wait, I'm the Zen master. Right, right. But yeah, I, with the mindfulness for success, it reminds me of um, somebody said about meditation. Meditation is not to get good at meditation. Right. It's so you can focus on what you want to focus on for longer periods of time. Exactly. Well, I'm thinking about meditation in the sense of, you know, there's different forms of meditation. Obviously, we can, you can sit on a cushion. There's, you know, whatever particular practice. But I mean, I learned many years ago when I first learned how to meditate. I remember one of my first teachers said to me, it's again, not about getting good at meditation. It's about noticing how you show up in life, right? You'll know your meditation practice is really working, not when you can sit for a long time or not have your mind wander or not. Because sometimes you and I both know Meditation can be really hard and I get distracted. I was meditating this morning and like, I didn't want to do it. And I was annoyed and frustrated and my mind was going hundred miles an hour. And I was able to still calm myself down a bit. And I had, you know, a decent meditation session, but it's more, how do I feel in this moment as you and I are connecting? How do I feel as I'm interacting with my wife or with my daughters or with clients or when I'm sitting in traffic or when something doesn't go my way or I get some bad news or, you know, all of those things, and I, we start to notice, oh, I'm able to, as you said, focus for longer periods of time or not get so distracted or so irritated or triggered by something that happens. And then all of a sudden we start to realize like, oh, meditation is much more than whatever time we spend 
on the cushion or wherever we, we do our meditative practice. It's training your nervous system to be more effective in all the situations you end up in in the day. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I learned, Tom, when I was an athlete is like, and then this is true, I think, in business and in life, is we get so much practical training. Sometimes maybe we want even more on how to do our job. So like, again, I was a pitcher growing up and it was like, I learned how to throw a curveball and then a slider and then a changeup. And, you know, we would physically work out all the time. And there was all of this focus on mechanics and how to do it better and how to be more effective and efficient at the task we were trying to accomplish. We didn't get hardly any training on the mental or emotional aspect of doing that. And for me, even though I was good, I would be out on the pitcher's mound and when the bases were loaded and there was, you know, nobody out and the best hitter on the other team up, I, it wasn't a physical situation for me. It was much more of a mental, emotional one as my mind would start to go, oh gosh, he's going to hit a grand slam or oh, I, I can't get him out or I can't throw a strike or all of that was way more about my mind and my heart. But most of my training was about my body. And yeah. so over the years, as I started to integrate some of that into the way that I approach sports, now the way I look at my own work and when I'm working with teams and people and leaders and all different types of work, it's like how much time and energy do we actually put on the mental, emotional training, so to speak, of what we do and not so much simply just the practical or mechanical training. And again, the world is evolving, but I still think we can and probably should, even though I don't love to use the word should, we should spend more time than we do focused in those areas because they make all the difference. Absolutely. I think back to sales, where you you can know your stuff, but when the when the room fills up and your your big presentation for for your yearly quota comes, yes, I'll take a guy who's calm and knows half the stuff and knows how to connect than some ace who's sweating and you know. Yeah. Well, completely. I mean, so much of life. It could be sales. It could be you know any time when we go in for a job interview or we're pitching an idea that we have, so much of it has to do with, again, our sort of mental, emotional state with ourselves and our ability to connect with others. You know, one of the things that I learned about early on when I first kind of got into this work, you know, I started hearing about this notion of emotional intelligence. And I was like, that sounds fancy and like complicated. What is that? And then I started to read books about emotional intelligence. And I was like, oh, it's about self-awareness and self-management which has a lot to do with mindfulness and all of that, but it's also about social awareness and relationship management. So I was like, oh, emotional intelligence is fundamental to not only our own state, but our ability or inability to connect with other people. And in today's business world, in the tech world and otherwise, so much of the work is done globally and remotely. You know, you and I sitting here having this conversation, whether people are listening to us or even have the ability to watch a video, you know, you're sitting in your office, I'm sitting in mine, so much of business is done this way. It's not done face-to-face -face or in the same room as much as it used to be. Therefore, do we have the ability to listen? Do we have the ability to have empathy for other people? Do we have the ability to be curious about people, especially if they're different than we are and come from a different place and have a different, you know, just set of values, if you will, or, or mindsets in which they were raised. And so that becomes so much of the differentiator in people's success individually and team success collectively. Yeah, think of all the movement in the business world, people going to a new job. The, one of the first things that jumped out at me about emotional intelligence was when a kid goes to a new school, mm. there's a way for them to integrate and ingratiate them into the group 
yes. it's a technique and an emotional intelligent way of doing it. Yeah. Gradually and you you observe, you get make let them see you, but then you let them do, and then eventually you get in there. And that, that would if, if everyone knew that when they were growing up, whew, yeah. It would be amazing. Well, and so much of, you know, it's funny to talk about growing up and being in school. I mean, I think about this, and for especially for us as men, I'm, this is also true for women in, in different ways, the way we get socialized. But one of the things for me, you know, as an athlete and then in school, and it's like, you know, I was a pretty good athlete and I was a pretty good student and I was sort of paying attention and doing the right things, not getting myself into trouble. But as, as I, like, I remember being in high school and I would be sitting in class and I was really focused because I wanted to get good grades. I wanted to have the opportunity to play baseball in college and go to a good school and all of that was important. But I'm sitting in like trigonometry class or I'm sitting in, you know, chemistry or whatever. And we're learning these things that first of all, I don't understand why I'm learning them. Like, how is this going to be re relevant in my life? And that didn't make sense to me. But the second thing was like, how come we're not talking about the fact that like, I've got some issues going on at home or I have some fear and insecurity or I want to ask that girl out on a date but I'm afraid she's going to reject me or all of the things that were going on inside of me but people weren't necessarily talking about it or even as an athlete it's like before the game even though I was a pretty good athlete I would get really nervous but I'd look at my teammates and they didn't look as nervous as I felt nobody was talking about it so I just thought I was crazy like yep. I'm like I'm just insecure maybe there's just something wrong with me except for the guy over there throwing up right right yeah it was obvious, but for the most part, even that, it was like this sense of, and again, this is a human thing. We get a certain training or indoctrination, particularly as men, suck it up, be a man, boys don't cry, those kind of things. So we sort of shut down ourselves emotionally. When I talk to women about this, the training is different, but when it shows up and manifests itself in the business world, we start talking about emotions and emotional intelligence, or I, a lot of my work focuses on authenticity and being real. What I hear from a lot of women, which I don't, I can't relate to personally because I'm obviously not a woman, it's like, look, if I've worked really hard over the course of my career to keep my emotions in check at work, because if I get too emotional, especially as a woman, I won't be taken seriously, I'll be disregarded. A lot of the men that I talk to, it's not about just shutting down their emotions at work, it's just shutting down their emotions in life. It's like, I don't have access to those because I got picked on or made fun of or you know whatever happened when I was young that I just shut that down. And in either case, and it's not so much specific to gender necessarily, although it manifests itself differently, so much of what I do when I go in and work with teams, particularly leadership teams, high-level leadership teams, is try to create an environment where it's safe enough where people can be themselves, and as I like to say, lower the waterline on the iceberg so we can get a little more real. And sometimes it taps into some of those emotional areas where we feel vulnerable and maybe a little uncomfortable, but if we're willing to show up more authentically, it not only liberates us, but it gives the people around us permission to do the same. Right. What about the recent stuff in some of the tech companies where the men mm. are behaving, men behaving badly? Yes. How, how do you, I'm sure you've thought of this, but bring yeah. your whole self to work. Right. Plenty of people would say, time out. Like, right. maybe not. So what, well, what's your yeah. It's big. I mean, look, especially in the last year or two, I've heard people say things to me like, oh, yeah, bring your whole self to work. That's great. That's great for you, Mike. You're a straight white man. It's easier for you to do that. And the first thing that I acknowledge when people say that is you're absolutely right. I, I, I don't know what it's like to be anything but me. I don't know what it's like to be female. I don't know what it's like to be gay. I don't know what it's like to be you name any sort of person of color. I don't know what it's like to be anything but the age that I am. And come. I mean, that's true, I think, for all of us. So I think we have to acknowledge that with respect to like the Me Too and the Time's Up movement in terms of 
a lot of stuff coming out around the behavior of men and the lack of gender equality and sexual harassment all the way to assault and things much worse than that. I think it's been, for me personally, even though I was raised by a single mom, I'm married to an amazing woman, I grew up with older sisters, I have two daughters, like my life has actually been surrounded by females. And I sort of somewhat arrogantly thought like, I understand, I get it, I'm a pretty sensitive, open-minded man. And the last year in particular, as I've listened to so many women tell their Me Too stories, I've been humbled and it's been painful to hear, it's been hard to fully understand and to grok. But I think that part of what I've been talking about and, and trying to engage other men with is that, can we spend a little more time actually listening to the women around us? Hear their stories, understand that the world is, I mean, we know this conceptually, or at least mentally, the world is really different. My wife, Michelle, and I were actually at an event about two years ago and the woman leading the event asked a question to all the men in the audience. She said, when was the last time you felt physically unsafe? Was it within the last 10 years? Was it in the last five years? Was it a year, you know, six months? She kind of went through these. Then she, we raised our hand like, when was the last time you remember? I think I raised my hand that I'd felt physically unsafe at some point in the last year. And then she asked the women the same question. It started with 10 years, five years, a year, six months, three months, month, week. Within the last 24 hours, 80% of the women's hands in the room went up, including my wife sitting right next to me. And I was like, I looked at Michelle, my wife, and went, what? And I'm looking around at the room, and most of the men in the room had some version of this expression on their face, like me, like, what? And, and we, it, it moved me to tears. And the woman who was speaking said, this is one of the fundamental differences between men and women that we never talk about. It's, and for most of us as women, we don't even think about it. It's just part of how it integrates in our life. We think about where are my keys? Where's the car? Who's here? What's going on? You know, just conscious of these things. And it started to have me think in a business meeting, in a team meeting, when a conversation gets intense, or we start debating about an idea, even if you and I get into an argument about something, like it's rare that it would get to the point where it might escalate, where I would be afraid you're gonna like physically hurt me or dominate me in some way. Right. But again, it was just an example for me of like, wow, there's so much more for us to pay attention to and to try to talk about. And these issues are hard because the men behaving badly thing, when something awful really comes out and we hear about it and we've heard about these things and there's been some accountability, to some degree, but then you have situations where Google was in the news recently in a very negative way that, you know, they found some guys doing some things that they weren't supposed to do and that were awful and they let them go and then they got a ton of money on the way out mm -hmm. as a way to try to give them a golden parachute and say, hey, you know, you know, there, look, there's a lot to unpack in all of this. And I think the way that I've been trying to approach it in my work and with the teams and leaders that I work with is like, we just have to create more space to talk about these things and to realize that they're real and you know, there's no specific solve for it or an answer. Here's what we do. It's just to understand the complexity and the depth of it. Mm. With the, let's say, harassment in the workplace, like a man comes in and he's, that's just who I am. You know, I'm, I'm just like your equation. I, 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 you have an equation where authenticity is yep. harmful if could you go right. so, the, so the way that I talk about authenticity is authenticity. People think of authenticity a lot of times as honesty. I'm just being myself. So the guy's like, hey, I just tell dirty jokes. Get over it. You're being too sensitive, right? Okay. Now, look, I mean, we could have a debate about that. But at the end of the day, the way I define authenticity is it's honesty, yes. But we have to remove our self-righteousness from our honesty and add vulnerability. So it's honesty minus self-righteousness 
plus vulnerability. So in a case like that, I mean, look, something like harassment or assault or something, that hopefully it's pretty obvious and clear what that is. However, I think part of the process of what's been going on in recent months and over the last year is for us as men to realize, oh, something that I thought was funny may actually not be funny, right? Like telling a sort of off-color joke is one thing, ha ha, we can laugh, no big deal. But in the presence of people, particularly in the presence of women, what would that be like if the joke made you feel uncomfortable or in some way you felt threatened by that? Now, creating an environment where people feel safe enough to speak up. Now imagine, again, just imagine being a woman working with just say me and you and you and I, ha ha ha, and we're just joking and we're talking and we're not thinking about it. And she's not only getting offended, but it's making her feel unsafe. If she feels unsafe by the joke, she's probably not going to feel safe enough to say, hey, guys, knock it off. That doesn't make me feel right. Right. So at some level, the onus then becomes, look, I think all of us as human beings, can we do a better job of speaking up and letting people know when we feel uncomfortable and unsafe? Yes. That said, though, being in a certain dominant or privileged position, we have to then pay more attention to what are things that I'm doing and saying that might, even though I don't mean them to be, potentially offensive. I'll give you an example of just some feedback I got recently. There's a story that I've been telling for the last couple of months when I've been speaking because it happened. I was speaking at an event in a workshop and this guy raises his hand and says to me, hey, Mike, what if I don't know when I'm being self-righteous? Because we were talking about authenticity and it was a, a very honest, very open, very real question. And I said, that's a good question. He's like, if, you know, how, will I, how do I know or how can I pay more attention, be more aware of my own self-righteousness? And I looked at him and in the moment, my instinct was he was straight. That was just my hit. And I asked him, I said, are you married? And he said, yes. And I said, ask your wife. Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody laughed. And I said, you know, she probably knows, as do your coworkers and people close to you, what it looks like. They're on the receiving end of your self-righteousness, right? So I've been telling that story because it's poignant and it's real and it's funny. But I was at an event not that long ago and someone came up to me and said, you know, that thing you said, and it was funny and it made sense, but what about for people who aren't married? What about for people who aren't straight? What about for people who have, you know, and, it, and again, and it was, I, it didn't even occur to me. And then I realized, oh, but that's the way it happened. I was really just telling a real story, but you're right. Okay. And I, so from a place of inclusion, it's like, can I tell that same story and make that same point and not have it necessarily be about a man and his, his wife who's, right? Absolutely. And I just started to, I just altered the words that I said and told the same story and it made the same point and had the same impact. Do you know what I mean? That's something. Yeah. Small. How did you switch it though? What did you, I just said to him, cause what I said to him was I, I said, when he said, how do we know, you know, first here's what I did. I actually used the word spouse or I used the word partner and it actually landed flat cause I was overly trying to be so PC. Yeah. But what I then said, when I tell the story now, I said, this man raised his hand and said, how do I know when I'm being self-righteous? I said, ask the people closest to you. Yes. And then everybody laughed. It's still the same point. I was like, like your coworkers, if you're married, your partner, whatever, you know. But the point of it was just, again, and look, someone could hear this and say, well, gosh, it's like the PC police. We have to mind every single word that we say. And how can people get so offended about the littlest thing? But it's really more about being in the minds of people as best as we can. And especially given the work that I do, my intention is to be inclusive and try to find common ground for us as human beings because here's the paradox, Tom, the way I look at it, even using the, the iceberg metaphor, it's like above the waterline, we are very different. We're men and women, we're different ages, we're different races, we're different backgrounds, we're different levels, we're different, all kinds of different levels of experience and education and you name it, different religions, all these things that make us different and unique. 
And I think we have to do as good of a job as possible, not just to be politically correct, but also to create the most conducive environment for people to thrive, to be mindful and aware and celebrate and embrace all the difference. The paradox is though, the further down below the waterline we go, the more similar we become as human beings. Mm. The less it, I can honor and acknowledge someone who's totally different and try to understand them and be curious and be respectful and mindful. And at the same time, when they really share with me who they really are, what I've found in my life and my research, but also my experience is like, we're way more alike than we are different down below that waterline. Because down there is really some basic human emotions, yes. desires, fears, doubts, goals, dreams. And your story and my story may be really different. But as human beings, we're actually not that different. Yes, yes. And more information gives us that commonality. I, I was, uh, there's a yoga teacher around here where we had a business meeting mm -hmm. and we were about to start. And she said, whoa, let's, this is years ago. She said, let's just not start. Let's, yeah. let's just sit and then let's go around and say some things about ourselves. And you, you do this beautifully. Yeah. Like it, it's almost like two hours into a workshop, two hours into a two hour workshop, somebody <laughs> might ask you, what, what are we gonna do? Oh no, we're doing it. We're this doing it. We're doing. How do you feel? And that's the thing, going back even to your question of what makes great culture is like finding opportunities to create space for us to recognize our common humanity. You know, many years ago, I was speaking at an event for a bank in Iowa and I was there to do, they were there for a couple days and I was there to do a four hour session in the morning on goal setting and success and some, you know, it was kind of a, a mentor mentee program, if you will. And anyway, right before I went on stage, they, it was like day two of a three day thing. They, they pull me aside and they say, hey Mike, we have to make an announcement before you get up to start your session. We just got a call, one of, one of the members of our team, he's not here, he wasn't here, uh, he died last night. Like he had a heart attack and, he, and it was like, and so I was like, okay, I said, do, oh, you know, and they said, we're gonna make the announcement we feel like we need to let people know because the, they'll probably get some notes and communications about this. And so they get to make the announcement. People are shocked. They're sad. As you can imagine, it's like you found out, I mean, someone who was healthy and well and fine today is gone tomorrow. We probably, most of us have probably had that experience of losing someone suddenly like that. And then they took a break and they came back and they said, we're going to keep on with the agenda. And so they introduced me and here I am, you know, the motivational speaker guy that's supposed to get everyone fired up, talking about goal setting. And Oh my gosh. It was, and you know, and I, and I got up and I said, listen, I don't really know what to say. I, obviously, I, I didn't know this man who you all work with, who, who we just found out passed away suddenly. But I shared in that moment, my own experience of grief. Uh, my mentor, Richard Carlson, who wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, who was a, a dear friend of mine, had died a couple years earlier, very suddenly, at a very young age, unexpectedly. And I just shared a little bit of that. And and not to make it about me, but my own process and how hard that was and how scary that was and how, and I just said, look, it, in context of what we're gonna talk about here today, it, it seems very unimportant relative to this. And so, you know, if you need to leave or you need to take some time or you just, you know, I'll, and we had about a hundred people in the room. And anyway, I mean, I just started, and I, you know, let's talk a little bit. I didn't want to make it into a thing, but had them share a little bit of how they were feeling with each other. So that, and then over time, you know, we, we ended up doing the four hours on setting goals and coaching and all the stuff we, I was there to talk about. But part of 
I share that because, again, I mean, that was a pretty intense and unique experience. But in life, things like that happen. And I think it's like if we can remember, as simple as this sounds, and it's actually not that easy to remember sometimes in our work, as intense as it gets, is like we're human beings first. So like when I'm, when I'm working with leaders or coaching leaders, I say, you know, check in with the human across from you first. Like, how are they doing? And then let's talk about, you know, the issue or the project or the success or the failure or the whatever. But if there's no connection between the humans, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. And, and usually always in that order, because, yeah. because if you're, you know, if you're trying to have some kind of a meeting to, to connect and to get stuff done, you got to right. first, you got to open and connect and then the information comes out. It reminds me, I was doing a workshop in prison. Oh, wow. We had a schedule. Mm -hmm. and we, we, in the workshop was about alternatives to violence and basically living from your heart. Yeah. And we were toward the end of a process and a man just broke open for the first time in his life. Yeah. And one of the, one of the other facilitators was like, all right, well, we gotta, we got, I said, no, no, this is why we did. This is why we did the whole morning. Like yeah. this is it. Yeah. If this lasts the rest of the day, then it's going to be the most gold we're going to get. So. Well, and that's such an important thing. I mean, look in, in life and in work and I mean, in prison, I would assume not spending any time in prison myself, both, at, you know, doing that great work that you're doing, but, you know, look, there are schedules and there are deadlines and there are deliverables and there are, but being able to be the kind of person or the kind of leader that has a sense for the moment, right? Like in that moment, hold on, this is why we're here. You know, sometimes what I'll say when I go in to lead a workshop or to speak, I'll say, I don't know exactly what I'm going to say or how much time we're going to spend. I'll send an outline and I'll say, well, here's my best guess. But the truth is, we're going to go where the conversation takes us. And if people really need to spend a lot of time talking about this thing or processing this thing or dealing with this thing or asking about this thing, then we'll spend that time. And if not, then we'll move through it more quickly. And I won't know until I'm there, yes. which again is a little scary for some of my clients because in their world and in their mind, it's all about, you know, time and this and that, and, you know, and there's some events that I'm at that like, if we go long, it's going to be a problem because there's other things coming later. So you can so simultaneously be mindful of that. And at the same time, you know, I think about this in my house. I mean, we have a 12 year old and a 10 year old daughter, two, two girls. And like in the morning, sometimes there's like emotional meltdowns and things happening and stuff they're upset about and whatever. And it's like, we try to mind that at the same time. My wife's really good at this. Like we got to get out the door at a certain time to get them to school. Cause like, it's important that they're at school on time. You know what I mean? So it's like, can we balance both equation. of them? Yep. Yeah. And that's like in nonviolent communication, it's what's alive in you? Like right. what's, what's alive? But in the workplace, many people don't know what's alive in them. Right. And they don't know what that question means. So it's, it's, yeah. it's delicate. So, so back, way back to the, we're, we're gonna, <laughs> we could probably do, I, was, I meant to do a 30 minute podcast, but we could probably do, you know, daily. Right two-hour podcast for I'm not I'm not short-winded as you probably noticed so <laughs> and this is I'd rather be doing this than anything on yeah. earth so yeah you talked about the Phil Jackson bringing stuff into the bulls yes. I, I immediately thought of in the workplace bringing this work this vital energy and life force this yeah. in between the desks and spreadsheets type of work yeah. what do you do with the resistors what do you do with the, you know, little piece of the room that's like, this is BS, you know? Yeah. 
Well, you know, here's what I've seen over 18 years of doing this kind of work in, in the corporate world in different environments, different companies, you know, tech companies, finance companies, insurance companies, nonprofit organizations, government agencies. I mean, places that you would stereotypically think would be way open to this. And some of them are in other places where you think, no, they would never. I think people want to work in a positive environment. If we just take that assumption, even the most negative, critical, cynical person that thinks all of this stuff is BS, they want to work in a positive environment and they want to be successful. So I always start with those two assumptions, right? They want to individually be successful and they want to be part of a winning team. And they also want to work in a positive environment. Even the most, you know, the person that's like got the, the sourest attitude that complains all the time, that individual, if you really get down to it, they don't really want to be that negative or that toxic and they don't want to work in that environment. Ultimately. Right. It's like a lawyer not asking a question that they don't know the answer to. Like, those right. two things, can we agree on that? Right. Yeah. But so then it becomes a question of, you know, I get the question sometimes. I mean, and you can imagine sometimes like, like just last week I was speaking at an event for a construction company mm -hmm. and it was an all hands meeting. So it was a lot of their superintendents and the, the guys is mostly men who work out in the field and then all the people who work in the office. And what was interesting is the, the president of the company who brought me in was really worried. Like this has to resonate with the field guys. Like you can't be corny and cheesy. Right. Where, can, where was the company? Companies actually, it's a, in San Francisco, so Bay Area based company. I was, I was fantasizing about it being in like Brooklyn. Right. Well, there, but but so what I've learned to do myself over the years is again, you got to find where are the threads that you can find again that common ground. Knowing if the if the supposition or the the my assumption is people want to be successful, they want to be on a winning team, and they want to work in a positive environment. The question then becomes, how do we go about it? and how do we address it? So the, the truth of the matter is like me being authentic in my own work, it's like I try to be myself everywhere I go. And I know that there are certain examples I can give or stories I can tell or ways I can approach it that are gonna be more relatable to certain groups of people than others. So again, using my own emotional intelligence, again, I don't approach the construction company exactly the same way that I approach the technology company, exactly the same way that I approach the nonprofit, because I try to get to know a little bit about them. So back to your question on the resistors, there are often resistors in the room anywhere you go. Right. But if you provide something that's valuable and accessible, what can happen is, back even to what we were talking about earlier, right, with a team culture, you know, the Golden State Warriors go out and get guys they think are gonna be good fits for their culture, but what you notice is they can bring someone in who maybe was a problem somewhere else, and all of a sudden they get caught up in the positivity of the culture, and it's like, Steve Kerr says you can have one knucklehead on your team, on a basketball team of 15. You can't have two because then they start creating all kinds of problems, right? And so I think that's a pretty good way to think of it. In a larger organization, you can have a couple people who are negative and roll their eyes at things and are cynical. But over time, what you have to do is invite them into that in a way that feels like it's going to benefit them or, quite frankly, have some difficult conversations to either coach them to turn it around or maybe ask them to leave. Sure, sure. Well, speaking of that, how's Cousins doing this year? You know, so far, I mean, he's injured, right? So he hasn't been playing. But the nice thing is, you know, this is DeMarcus Cousins, who probably the best center in all of the NBA, who had a big injury last year, who the Warriors picked up, who's had all kinds of problems in terms of getting thrown out of games and having a bad attitude. But it seems like he's gotten caught up in the positivity of the Warriors culture, and he's just excited to play and have a chance to play for a championship. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does. You know, but, but one other thing that I'll say about this, I mean, here's a question that I often get when I'm about to go in to work with a team. And they'll say some version of like, we're not gonna all like sit around and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, are we? Yep. And my response is, no, we're not. I said, but I'll tell you this, if you could get a team of people that was comfortable holding hands and singing Kumbaya, that would probably be a really strong team. 
Yes. So, so again, the question is, you know, it, we don't have to do trust falls or hold hands or do anything, but what we do have to do is create the conditions where people can thrive. And you know, Google did a study a few years ago. They spent three years studying this. They were trying to come up with what are the key conditions necessary for creating high performance for teams. And after three years of studying this, the number one condition that they came up with after all their study and looking at research and data, both within their company and just out in the world, the number one condition that drives high performance is called psychological safety. And what's psychological safety? It's basically trust at a group level. It means the team, the group, is safe enough for me to be myself, for me to disagree, for me to take a risk and fall flat on my face. We don't have to look the same, act the same, talk the same, have all the same ideas and opinions. If you can create an environment where there's psychological safety, people can thrive, they can innovate, they can do great things. If there's no psychological safety, we're gonna sit on our hands, we're gonna walk on eggshells, we're gonna be afraid to make a mistake or upset anybody, and therefore we're not gonna be able to succeed at the highest level. Yeah, so fear. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, the, uh, the equation could be fear makes the, puts the water line, if you're really scared, the water line's above your head. Completely. If the water, if you trust, 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 and the water line's on your feet, then you can yep. sing kumbaya, you can do anything. Completely. Well, and it's a paradox, right? Because the more trust there is, right? Psychological safety, basically trust at a group level. Trust is kind of a one-on-one -on -one phenomenon between me and you or between two individuals. But if you have trust or psychological safety, then it's safer. It's easier to lower the waterline. However, the best way to build trust with an individual or to create that psychological safety, especially if you're in a leadership position, is to lower the waterline. Vulnerability. Right? You'd be vulnerable. And then that all of a sudden gives other people permission to do the same thing. You know, the natural human response to vulnerability is empathy. That's why when we lower the waterline on our iceberg, when we get real, all of a sudden we realize, oh, wow, you're way more like me than I realized. There's all this common ground. We have all of this stuff in common, not just our stories. We may have some similarities in our stories, but even if our stories are completely different, we come from two different parts of the world. We look at the world completely differently. We can always still relate to each other because we know what it feels like to be human. So if you express something about your life or yourself where you share some fear or some doubt or some insecurity or some joy or some gratitude or some excitement, the circumstance you share may be really different than the circumstance of my life or that I've experienced, but I know what it feels like to feel fear. I know what it feels like to feel gratitude. I know what it feels like to feel insecurity. I know what it feels like to feel joy. I know what it feels like to feel anger. I know what it feels like to, you name it. We, we all know what it feels like to feel every single human emotion there is. Yep, so yep. the more open we are, with ourselves emotionally, not only does it liberate us, it gives other people permission to do the same thing, and then we can connect and relate with each other better. Yeah, and that's your book. This is Mike's book. It's filled with anecdotes and stories about how to do that, mm. practical ways to do that. What, what I recommend sometimes to teams and companies is something I, I read about with the 76ers, back to sports, yeah, they have a very international team. So they had a thing where once a week in training camp, I think they would have one of the players do a 15, 20 minute PowerPoint presentation on anything. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, the guy from Duke would do some esoteric thing about philosophy and, and people from, were from all over the world. So they had all these things that they would share. And it yeah. had this amazing result of like, just everyone became human. Two people yeah. that would have never talked to each other were, you know, becoming 
friendly and and, and it, it's really amazing what that can do you know i mean that what it opens up i just was down at at stanford a few weeks ago we have our annual alumni baseball game and i'll i'm probably going to have dave esker on my podcast and talk about this in my in my next book but dave's the new head coach at stanford um he was the assistant coach when i was there he played there he's just a couple years older than i am and our head coach mark marquis who had been at stanford for 41 years retired after the 20 17 season and then so dave's first year with stanford was last spring and one of the things he said that he did was he really wanted to get to know his players more and he wanted the players especially the new freshmen that came in and players in general to get to know each other and so he invited each player and on his college baseball team there's almost 40 guys i mean it's a lot of players yeah between when they came back from the holidays to when the season started which is like mid-february each guy was going to get up and sort of tell his story for you know, however, 15, 20 minutes. And they do a couple of guys a day. And he's like, it actually was a commitment. They had to really carve out the time to do it. He said, and at first there was some resistance and guys didn't want to do it. But then eventually what happened was it became one of the most important things they did because guys would get up and share, you know, I wear number 13 as my uniform number. And the reason I do that is because one of my friends in high school committed suicide and that was his number. And so I wear it to honor him and I play for him and for myself or stories like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. real serious like life things that they didn't necessarily know about each other because as humans and particularly as young men those aren't necessarily the things that we share with each other but then knowing that you realize oh wow like there's a whole deep complex human being here that's got a whole life story which of course we know mentally but once we start sharing it more personally i love the saying and i think it's so true the more personal the more universal yeah so the more personal we're willing to share, the more universal the sharing is, the more we can connect with one another and go, oh, wow, I get more of who you are and I see how we're more related to each other, even if it doesn't seem like that on the surface. Totally. And I, I use your oh, like totally simple exercise of if you really knew me, Yeah, which is great. It never fails. Right. And so, I mean, my, my friends, Rich and Yvonne, who started a great organization called Challenge Day are the ones I learned that from. And it's just this notion of being able to sit next to a, another human being or in a group and each person takes a turn and just repeats that phrase. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me, you know, in like literally a minute or two minutes of, of repeating that phrase and saying that a couple times, it's amazing how open we can get and how much we can share and then how much trust and connection it creates with another human being or if we do i love doing that exercise in a group a group of people who work together in a team and we go around one by one and i'll often start with the leader i usually go first to set the tone then i have the leader of the group go and what's amazing is like yeah. and these are it gives permission to everybody and people all of a sudden they learn stuff they've worked together for five years and go i had no idea that yeah. or, or or even if again it's more even about if you really knew me in this moment like how are you actually feeling right now my wife and I do that exercise with each other as a way to kind of check in. And we've known each other for 18 years. You know what I mean? It's not about knowing our stories necessarily. It's part of it. But it's really being able to open up and express how we're feeling and what's going on emotionally so that we can connect more deeply with each other. Well, again, this is, this is infinite. Um, <laughs> and it's becoming more and more prevalent. I think that the, yeah. I see more and more of this popping up and more companies are opening their eyes to it. Yeah. Um, I would love to have you on again down the road. You're, Anytime. You're the best guest we've ever had. <laughs> um, so where can people learn more about you or work with you? How, what's the process? The best way is to just connect with me through our website, which is mike-robbins.com. Awesome. And 
this is your latest, or this is your book that came yes. out when? Six months ago? Yeah, Bring Your Whole Self to Work came out in May, and it's my fourth, and then we just, uh, I'm just gonna start on a new book that'll be out probably in the spring of 2020, so that'll be a while, but it's gonna focus a lot on what we're talking about here and, you know, creating that, that environment where people can really thrive as a team or as a group. The championship culture. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Fantastic. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Key to Culture podcast, sponsored by Quantius, the premier marketing agency for emerging technology. Quantius, smart, fast, curious.